1 Peter chapter 1. And we want everyone to have a Bible to follow along. So the guys are making their way to the front. They'll head toward the back. As they do, if you get their attention, they will get a Bible to you that is marked at 1 Peter 1, the passage that we'll be considering. Over the last few years, I've had opportunity to travel to a few different countries. In 2009, I was able to go to the northern Marianas Islands near the coast of China. In the following year, I uh, able to spend two weeks in India. And last year, to uh, both the Philippines and to mainland China. And I bring that up because I've experienced what some of you have who have had opportunity to go overseas, and that is that being in another country has all sorts of hurdles associated with it, both small and large. You have to figure out small stuff like how much you tip a waiter or whether you're supposed to tip at all. You have larger issues like trying to catch a cab from the airport without being snookered into paying a fortune since you don't know the language and you can't value the currency quickly. Or in some places, including those that I mentioned that I've been able to go to, you have to be aware of them robbing foreigners on a regular basis. In fact, the airport in Manila is consistently ranked as the highest in the world for crime. I didn't tell my family that before I went, but I made it back in one piece. Now, in all of those cases, though, I chose to go. And I was aware of the risks because I had been informed ahead of time by my hosts. And so if I was to be surrounded by people who were wary of or perhaps even hostile to Americans, I would not be surprised. I was told that if I were approached by anyone to help with my bags, for instance, at the airport, I should wave them off and handle my baggage myself. I wish I had followed that advice, as failing to do so put me in a precarious position that I'll share with you sometime, but I won't bore, with you, bore you with that now. But I had been fully informed regarding what I was getting into, and having been fully informed, I chose to go anyway. But think about making a choice that transports you to a foreign land with all the potential hostilities and the miscommunication and the general difficulty of being in another country and yet you have never actually moved an inch. And that's the situation for the people to whom the letter of First Peter was written. They became foreigners in their own land the moment that they gave their allegiance to another king. And as a result, they can be and are called exiles in verse 1 of chapter 1. But they are exiles where they live. Unlike the exiles in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, where God's people would be physically taken from time to time from the land that God had given them to a foreign land by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians, these Christians have become strangers in their own countries. Now, how is that? Well, please take a look at the outline that was inserted in your program. And at the top, I have a paragraph that says, Christians are called out of the fallen values of their culture, and as a result, always experience some level of estrangement. 
You see, friends, we become exiles in our land when we experience what verse 2 calls the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That word sanctify means to be set apart. And in verse 2, it refers to the initial separation that occurs when the Spirit of God moves on our hearts, convicts us of our sin, and creates in us a desire for relationship with the God from whom our sin had formerly separated us. But the moment that we're reconciled to God, as we saw last week, that very moment we become estranged from the world. We don't have to change locations. We simply change allegiances. And from that day forward, everything is different. This is always true for any Christian in any place that things change when you come to Christ because you are changed. You indeed are changed for the better, but often friends and family and co-workers don't think so. And depending on where one lives, the government sanctions may be hostile to you. In India, the peace-loving Hindus and Buddhists are not so much when it relates to Christians. In a place like Pakistan, it's hard to live in a country whose capital is called Islamabad and get a fair shake or even engage in safe travel. In America, we have a state religion too, secular humanism. And the more secularized our society becomes, the more strange Christianity and Christians become. So that all being the case, It's easy for us to focus on our apparent plight as Christians, having moved nowhere, simply changed allegiances, but now having become estranged in our own land. It's easy for us to focus on the apparent plight that we have without remembering what is our real situation. We can very easily fail to look past our current circumstance and forget the true nature of of where God has placed us and what God has done for us and in us. And that is why Peter wrote this letter to its first readers. And by extension, why it's written to us. It's written to remind us, as you see on the screen, how we are to live right in a world that's gone wrong. Because we, like they, can be myopic very narrow-sighted in our view of our circumstances, and fail to remember, friends, that there's a reality beyond the present. There are real promises and real truths that are beyond what you can see in the immediate moment and in your present circumstances. Christians believe in a reality beyond the present present circumstances, and in the midst of our trials, We, like they, 2,000 years ago, are called to remember that reality is more than what we are in and what we can see. That's why the Bible tells us very, very plainly that we are people who live by faith and not by sight. And that's why I also say at the top of the outline that was inserted in your program, in the midst of difficulty, We must see beyond what is apparent to what is real. Now, you see in the outline, we have four things. And we have four things that are listed for you there. And those things are quite apparent to us. That 
that we are suffering in some way, shape, or form. Or we go on to say that, that we are weakened and so on. Those are all the apparent things that are happening in our lives. But what I want to do as we fill in those blanks is to show you the real situation. Yes, indeed, those other things are all true. We are suffering. We are weakened. We are dying. But there's a reality beyond that that Peter is calling us to recall in our situation as people who are estranged in our own country. So we're going to look at that together, and we need God's aid as we do. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Our Father, we thank you for telling us in your word what you have done for us and on our behalf and what you are doing in your world so that as strangers in a foreign land, as you tell us so many times in this dear letter and throughout your word, that in the midst of being sojourners in a foreign land, we know why. We know where we are. We know why the hostilities occur. We know why the difficulties are there. And we know things that are beyond the immediate because you have told us and you have promised them to us. Help us to be reminded of those so that we can apply them in our circumstances to bring praise to your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The first thing that we need to understand, says Peter, beginning in verse 3, is that, as I say in your outline, yes, we are suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, we are not silenced. We are suffering, but we are not silenced. We saw last week, and if you were not able to be with us last week, then I invite you to listen to the introductory message in the letter to First Peter. All of those messages are on our website. The website is listed at the bottom of your outline. But we saw last week that these first readers to whom Peter wrote were indeed engaged in a form of persecution. We saw that the emperor Nero had burned the city of Rome. and He had blamed Christians for that. And so they were living at a time just before or just after that kind of systematic persecution had broken out. But nevertheless, they were held in suspicion, held in suspicion because they engaged in something that involved the eating of the body and drinking of the blood of Christ. And so they were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of sexual immorality because of their love feasts and engaging in uh, what the Bible calls a, a holy kiss. There are all kinds of slanders and accusations directed against them. And so they had their form of suffering, and Peter is writing to them now to tell them how to view their circumstances and how to not only live in those circumstances, but to thrive in them. And he begins by saying, though you are suffering, you are not to be silenced. Notice verse number 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that verse, verse number 3, begins what is in the Greek language, the language that your New Testament was written in, one long sentence that goes all the way down to the end of verse 12. And over the next few weeks together, we're going to break this sentence into three, three sections. But it starts with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the suffering that you are undergoing and that Peter is going to reference now later in, in the book, 
in the midst of that, the first thing you need to do is make sure you are not silenced in terms of your praise of God. It is the most important thing that you can do in the midst of your difficulty. Praise God. Praise God for who He is. Who is He? He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter singles out God the Father. Most of you know that the Bible teaches that the true and living God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And all of them are fully and equally God. But, but Peter begins, praise be to the God and Father. Praise God the Father. Now, why is that? It is because throughout Scripture, God the Father is the member of the triune God that is presented as the one who initiates all of his good gifts to his creatures. It is God, the Father, who sends God the Son, Jesus says in John chapter 5, and God the Son follows the will, submits to the will of God the Father. And so they are equally God, but they each have, as you have probably learned, roles to play within the Trinity. And God the Father is the initiator. And it is because of God the Father then that we, that we know Jesus because God the Father is the one who sent Jesus. James chapter 1 tells us, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And the most perfect and the, and the greatest gift that God the Father has given is sending God the Son. God the Son obeyed. God the Spirit moved on our hearts to call us to God in the words of verse number 2, sanctifying us in the work of the Spirit. Now, Satan desires that our circumstances, our difficulties as Christians, rather than becoming occasions for praise, that they become occasions for cursing. You see this through, throughout Scripture. He desires that we would see our circumstances not as something that God is doing to make us better, but Satan wants us to have a perspective on those circumstances that will cause us to be bitter. And yet we see in Scripture many brothers and sisters in much more difficult circumstances than any of us are in right now and probably ever will be in our lives, knowing the truth that our first duty, even when we are suffering, is to not be silenced and to praise God. We see that when Jesus' first followers go out to proclaim the gospel message and they are often arrested and hauled before the authorities and told not to preach in His name. We see it in Acts chapter 16 where the Bible says, After Paul and Silas had been severely flogged because they had been preaching the gospel, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, picture yourself. You're in that situation. You've been preaching the gospel, and no good deed goes unpunished, and therefore you're thrown into prison. What are you doing? This is what the Bible says they were doing in the next verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, praising God with their lips in their circumstances. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, how is it that Paul and Silas and these early Christians could, though suffering, 
not be silenced, but rather praise God in those circumstances? Well, it was due to what they believed about God. They believed things like God is able to deliver us. (laughs) They believed things like if God chooses not to deliver us, He is still worth it. He is still most valuable. And therefore, in the midst of my suffering, I will still extol the person and work of God. I will praise Him. We see this in Acts chapter 5 when, yet again, the apostles are hauled before the authorities. They called the apostles in. They had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And it says the apostles left the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. How is it that they praise God in their circumstances? Because of what they believed about God. And God was worth it. God is allowing us to participate in the work that He's doing in His world, allowing us to spread His fame in His world. We are allowed to suffer disgrace for His name? They were told not to preach. The next verse tells us what they did. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped (laughs) teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You all remember the story of Job. And if ever there was a time where it is very clear that God designs our circumstances in order to turn our mouths toward praise of Him, and yet Satan has other designs for those very same circumstances, it is in the book of Job. And you'll remember that Satan challenged Job, and he said, Job only serves you because of your gifts to him. If you take those things away, then he will curse your name. He only serves you for what he gets from you, not because you are valuable in who you are says Satan. And so the challenge is on, and you remember that Job lost everything. And here's what Job says in chapter 1 and verse 21. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because of who he is, because of what he has done. He is more valuable than my current circumstances. Now hear this, brothers and sisters. We read those things. We sing those things. But the question for us is, do we live those truths? Have you lived, have I lived that truth this past week? In the circumstances that God has placed in our lives. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing things like, blessed be your name. In the land that's plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. When I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, we sing, blessed be your name. And every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. When the sun is shining down on me, when the world is all as it should be, but also on the road that's marked with suffering, and though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And Peter says, I know you're in difficult circumstances, but there is a reality beyond your circumstances, 
And that reality is the person and work of our God. And he is powerful and mighty and sovereign and ultimately valuable. And therefore, whatever suffering we endure, yes, he can overcome. And whatever suffering we endure, yes, is worth it if it brings glory to his name. Now, Peter then has written these things, the first two verses that we saw last week, and now set this third verse in the context of praise, not being silenced in the midst of our our suffering, as a heading for the entire book, and certainly as a heading for these nine verses from verses 3 through through 12, 10 verses. He set that as as a heading, just like you and I do when we have to address a difficult circumstance with a person or persons, whether in person, face-to-face, or by letter. Just think about having to do that. Somebody's in a difficult situation, and you, you are called to try to speak encouragement to them. Or you have to confront someone. You think ahead of time about what you're going to say and what you need to prioritize in your opening remarks, whether written or verbal. And that's precisely what Peter has done here now. He knows the situation that these readers are in, and he has chosen to start with the most important things from verses 3 through 12 to remind them about who they are and their standing before their God. And then in light of that, after he has explained that now, he can give them very direct instruction that we're going to see in the weeks and months ahead about how they are to live in the light of that. And so the first thing that Peter tells us is, though we are strangers in our own land like they were, that we are suffering but we are not to be silenced. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us secondly in your outline that we're not only suffering but we are indeed exiled. But though we are exiled, we are not orphaned. Suffering, but we are not to be silenced. Whose idea was it to turn those fans on? Those of you that were here last week remember that I asked for them to be turned on. I think I caught everything. Exiled, but not orphaned. The Bible tells us in verse number one that we, like they, are elect exiles, strangers, and in our case, strangers in our own land. Think about being sent away to a land that you're unfamiliar with. In the case of Christians, we become strangers in our own land, as I've said, because of the profound change that takes place when we come to Christ. When I read in preparing for this message a story of a young man whose name some of you will know, The story says that early in the 20th century, there was a young Welsh boy by the name of Jones. In search of a better education, his parents sent him away to a boarding school far from home. Years later, the boy, Martin, would reflect on his experience. He said, I must add that I suffered at that time from a sickness, he said, which has remained with me all along life's path. And that was a, and then he uses the Welsh word for for homesickness. Homesickness is an awful thing, as also is the feeling of loneliness, of being destitute and unhappy which stem from it. 
It is difficult to define this homesickness, but to me, it means the consciousness of a person being out of his home area and that which is dear to him. My three years at boarding school were very unhappy, and that was only because of this longing. I had bosom companions there, and I enjoyed the lessons. But I remember as if it were yesterday, sitting in church on Sunday night when I had come home for the weekend and suddenly being hit by the thought, this time tomorrow night, I will be in my bed at school. And all at once, I would be down in the depths. Away from where you long to be. And we have this subjective feeling, do Christians, who are exiled objectively because of our value system from those that we are called to live with and among strangers in our own land, but also the subjective feeling of homesickness because we are away from our, our home in heaven where we saw last week, Philippians 3.20, we are citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so here we are. Here they were. Estranged in their own land, objectively, but also the subjective feeling of homesickness. Do you know it is possible to be sent away? by whoever might have authority over you without that authority fully instructing you on what you're to do and why you've been sent away. Or you can be sent away and be forgotten. Many of our military men and women have experienced that, and that's why it's such a, a wonderful thing when, when cell phones are sent or letters are sent so that they are reminded that they are not forgotten, or someone can be sent away and forgotten in a nursing home. Or sent away, but not giving, given full supplies for what it is they're to do, wherever it is they're being sent. But even if, now hear this, even if you have all of those things, when you are sent away, by the very fact that you are away, you cannot have the presence of those you love by definition. But hear this. But with Christ, in our exile, though it is real to be sure, it includes the instructions that we need for why we are in exile and what we are to do while in exile. And it includes the supply that we need to accomplish that which God has for us in our exile. And we are remembered over and over again by our God at all times in our exile. And we have His presence at all times, no matter where we are and no matter what He has called us to do. We are not orphaned, really, or even practically. We are not alone, and we are not forgotten. And that's why verse 3 goes on to tell us that. And I will look at what verse 3 says by getting the paper that blew off of my podium. <laughs> verse 3 says, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Notice that He, in His mercy, has given us new birth. Sometimes we use mercy and grace as synonyms. In Scripture, they are, they are slightly different. 
Mercy addresses the misery that comes from sin, the consequences of our sin. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve in the salvation that He offers that overcomes our sin. And so in His mercy, God, and it's the right word for Peter to use, in, in God's mercy because the people to whom He is writing are in suffering, they are experiencing the misery that comes from living in a sinful, fallen world. And in His mercy, He has sought to alleviate that suffering, and He will ultimately completely alleviate that suffering. And He has started that, that process of alleviating that suffering in His mercy by giving us new birth, by us being born into His family. And that's why I say we are exiled, but we are not orphaned. I chose orphaned rather than not abandoned to emphasize our family relation as a result of being born again and, the Bible teaches, adopted into his family. Verse number 23 of chapter 1 tells us that we have been born again as a result of the imperishable seed of the Word of God being planted in us. This is the same experience of being made spiritually alive so that we are brought into God's family that Jesus told Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. Jesus told him, you must be born again. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came to earth, he first presented himself to his own. Jesus was born into a Jewish family. He presented himself to his, his fellow Jewish kindred. And yet, the Bible says they did not receive him. But then it says this in John chapter 1, to all who received him, that is, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so we are, yes, exiled, but not orphaned. We are born into God's family. We're adopted into God's family. And as a result of having been born into God's family, verse number 4 tells us that we have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Colossians chapter 1 speaks of our inheritance that we will have fully in the future, where we're told to give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. Jesus spoke of this inheritance of heaven that will be ours. No matter our circumstances now, when he said in Matthew 25, the king will say, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, most often in Scripture, especially in the first part of your Bible, the inheritance that God's people looked forward to was to inherit the land that he had promised to them. The Bible teaches that there will come a day still in the future, I firmly believe, that God's chosen people, the Jewish people, Israel, will inherit the land, fully the land that God has promised to them. But, but here we are being told that our inheritance is heaven. Our inheritance is eternity. And so in our present difficulty, though exiled, remember that you're part of the family of God and therefore entitled to the inheritance that goes with those who are in His family, and that inheritance includes eternity, heaven with Him. And that inheritance, according to verse 4, heaven, eternity, 
is such that it can never perish, spoil, or fade. I believe these three terms are chosen because they depict each a phase of the sin that is overcome completely when we receive this inheritance in heaven. The word that's translated perish, it means not destroyed. And that's because when we are in eternity, it fixes our problem of ultimate demise. You see, the wages of sin is what? Death. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish. And you see, there is coming a time where our inheritance will not perish. Our, the ultimate result of our sin is our, is our perishing, our, our demise. And so Peter reminds us that this inheritance is one that will never perish. And then he says it will never spoil. And that word spoil means it will not be defiled in any way. And so that fixes the reason that we're subject to perishing. Because of defilement, because of sin. But that will all be fixed in our inheritance as well. And so one commentator says, Peter tells us that our inheritance is unlike the world that we live in. It's unlike the world we know. And this commentator reminds us that in the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse as to why this is and how this can be. In Revelation 5, John is shown a vision of our future home where no one is worthy to take the scrolls of God's good plan for our inheritance and to bring it to completion. So discouraging was this fact that John wept over humanity's universal unworthiness. But then one does at last come forward. It is none other than Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to the rescue of a polluted, defiled, and unworthy world. He alone is pure. His character alone is spotless and without blemish. Jesus, the undefiled, through Him alone, we're able to enter into God's presence and receive an inheritance as glorious as the one that Peter calls undefiled. It will never spoil. And then he says thirdly in verse 4, it will never fade. It means it will never lose its beauty, its luster. And you see, this fixes... The evidence that we all have all around us and every day when we look in the mirror that indeed the beauty is leaving. That decay sets in for all of us. And so this inheritance will remove the evidences of decay. It will remove the reason for that decay, our sin, our defilement. It will not be spoiled in any way and therefore it will remove the ultimate consequences of our sin, our perishing, our demise, our dying. But in the meantime, there is a third thing that Peter tells us that is real, but it is not the full reality. And that is, as I say in your outline, we are dying. We are dying, but we are never dead. Dying, but never dead. And that's because... This inheritance comes from the fact that we've been born into God's family, verse 3. We are going to receive this inheritance in the future, but it is based upon the end of verse 3. We have been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And so now we are wasting away. Now our bodies are decaying. We are all in the process of dying. But if we know Jesus, the one who has conquered death, then we will never die, ultimately. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We know that if the earthly tent, speaking of our bodies, is destroyed, we know that we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And Jesus said, if you are related to me, the one who is the resurrection and the life, then you will never die. He said in John 14, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And then famously at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had died, and Jesus raises from the dead. Jesus says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Dying and wasting away is true for everybody. But it's worse for us. Now hear this. It's worse for us as Christians if we were wrong about this idea of a resurrection. It's worse for us. Now, here's why. It's worse for us because we have put everything in it. We are putting everything in, our entire hope, end of verse 3, into this living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have placed everything on the reality of Jesus having physically and literally raised from the dead. But if we are wrong, then we have deferred our reward rather than eating and drinking and making merry now. And that is why the Apostle Paul said, if Christ be not raised, we are above all people most to be pitied. But the truth is he has been raised, thanks be to God. And though we are dying, we are never dead. The Peter who wrote this experienced it very, very directly. Do you remember what a coward Peter was in the earthly ministry of Jesus? We looked at some of it last week. He denied Jesus three times because he was afraid of the consequences of being associated with the Christ. And yet, Peter becomes the most bold among the apostles, the first to speak up, the first to preach, being willing to be cast into prison. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, and not just crucified, crucified upside down, not believing himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as, as his Lord. What caused the transformation? The transformation was because Peter saw Jesus alive. Peter had seen him die on the cross. And then when Peter saw him alive, it changed Peter from a coward to the most courageous among the apostles. And so we are dying, but we are never dead because of the resurrection of Jesus. And lastly, in your outline, we are weakened, but we are never defeated. Weakened, but never defeated. You know, sometimes... We ask ourselves, undoubtedly those to whom Peter wrote, ask themselves, am I going to be able to make it? 
Am I going to be able to survive? Will I make it to my final destination? I know I've been promised this inheritance, and the down payment on that inheritance is the the resurrection of Jesus. But I find myself doubting because I am so weak. And when I say weakened here, friends, I'm not talking about the dying that was the third point. That's part of our physical weakness. Here I'm talking about our spiritual weakness. Spiritually weakened, but never ultimately spiritually defeated. And yet you wonder about that, don't you? And I wonder about that from time to time. Will I be able to survive? Will I make it? Do you know, we have lessons in the courage of of others that should embolden us. As we ask ourselves in the midst of the struggle in a fallen world and all the sin that surrounds us and our temptation toward imbibing in that sin, the thing that will keep us from it is what do I believe about God? And we have examples of others in Scripture who have done that very thing and withstood the test. One of those is in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Here's what the Bible says. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But then they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now hear this. What did they believe about the true and living God? In the midst of that temptation, in the midst of of physical threat and death, They believed that God was able, but they believed, like the first apostles, that he was also worthy. Now, think of that from the greater to the lesser in your circumstances. None of us have had to face anything like that. Think about what you're facing and how you are tempted to be spiritually weakened, to sin in the midst of that suffering. If God can do that with them, friends... God can see you through whatever, whatever is tempting you in your circumstances. And so as we are weakened, as we are tempted, as we sometimes fail, the question is, will we make it? And in the process of thinking about that, here's what we need to remember. It's what verse number 4 tells us at the end. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded, now notice, shielded by God's power. It was not ultimately the courage of Peter. It was not ultimately the courage of those three teenage boys in that fiery furnace. It was ultimately the power of God that sustained those boys, that sustained Peter, and that will sustain you in the midst of all of your temptation. What do you believe about who God is? What do you believe about what God can do? The trial that you're in may score temporary victories against you, and you may lose a battle and battles, but the war will be won because it in fact has been won by Jesus. And that's why the Bible says, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is why Jesus said when he walked the earth, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of, now notice, out of my hand, 
out of God the Son's hand. And then Jesus says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's you in Jesus' hand. There's you in the Father's hand. You are doubly secure because God the Son and God the Father are one, says Jesus. So, here's what Peter's telling us. Contrary to a best-selling book a few years ago in religious circles, you hope this is not your best life now. There was a book called that, Your Best Life Now. Listen, friends, if your best life is now, that means you're going to hell. Right? Because <laughs> the only thing worse than this life is hell. Your best life, Peter says, is not now. Your best life is then. But you should be sustained in this life and all of the difficulties of this life because of the fact that you will have a better place. You will have a better time promised by God and kept for you by His power, not by your power. And in the meantime, the Bible is replete with instruction for us so that we are not just going to hang on in the meantime, but we are going to thrive. We are not just going to mutter praise to God. But we will sing praise, sing out praise, even if in prison, as we've seen. We will live not as those who just have a legal guardian or are in foster care, and thank God for those who administer all of that kind of care, but those who are truly children of God. We say with John, that is what we are. We are not orphaned. We're not just hanging on but fully alive in the midst of all of the fallenness and all of the weakness and all of the dying and all of the suffering. We're not just barely making it. Peter is going to tell us as we move forward in this letter that we're to take new ground spiritually and we are to going to grow in the midst of this fallen world and our own fallenness. How? Because of the power of God who keeps us. And that's why we say in your take-home truth, in your outline, Who you know is much more important than what is happening. Who it is you know is much more important than what is happening at any given time in your life. And if you know the true and living God through the Savior, Jesus Christ, then all of the promises that Peter tells us about in verses 3 through 5 that you see in your outline, all of those are true for you. Now, dear friend... Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus? We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And when we do, that can begin now. Verse number 5 tells us about the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue that we are going to fully realize in the future. But that deliverance, that salvation, that rescue begins at a point in time when the Spirit of God moves on your heart. You hear the good news that Jesus has supplied a way of rescue for you and then you receive that, believing who Jesus is and what he did. And so what do I do? Realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus died on your behalf. Having never sinned, he died in your place. Repent of your sin. I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to go your way, not my way. 
and you receive Jesus Christ into your life by praying from your heart to him, acknowledging your sin, your need of his forgiveness, and asking him to rescue you. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder from your servant Peter that though we sojourn in a foreign land, as it were, it's the land in which most of us were born. Many of us have never moved. Some of us have lived in the same state, in the same area of the state our entire lives. And yet, we are exiles. But thank you for the reminder that though exiles, all of these wonderful spiritual truths that you have provided through Jesus are true of us. Help us to remember those in the midst of the suffering that you have called us to endure for your namesake. And I pray that there are some who right now in this sacred moment are being convicted by your Holy Spirit and drawn to the true and living God through the cross of Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we love you because you have first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.